And good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. How are you today? I'm doing well. I've just spent the week in the hospital with a niece having surgery and uh, and watching lots of kids for 48 hours over Rosh Hashanah. So it's been a, a family-heavy week for me. Uh, and that's, that's my way of making an excuse for the fact that I've gotten very little reading done of any sort. <laughs> well, i got to say, I, I mean, we've had a lot of not that heavy kind of things because I know that you know, your family background, which we won't go mm. into here particularly, but that does detract you a lot. But, I mean, as you know, I've been struggling with this virus for two weeks now. Yeah. One of it, one of which, you know, one of the happy by blows of it is that I spend a lot of time not being able to hear very well. You know, on average, I've lost about fifty percent of my hearing in both ears, uh-huh. uh, which hopefully will come back. I mean, I've woke, been waking up at three o'clock in the morning, going, "I'm not going deaf, am I?" But I think it's just no, a combination of the virus and actually allergy season beginning to start up because it's spring here. So I trust you'll be well before this insanely epic journey which you're undertaking in a couple of weeks to go to Worldcon in New York and then back to, no not Worldcon World Fantasy in New York and back to New York and it's it's crazy you shouldn't be doing this you should, <laughs> you, you, you should do something normal I, would, I don't get I don't do much normal Gary but uh, I mean yes it is going to be an insane time particularly when you said this insane journey you're about to embark on what I was actually thinking about immediately was preparing the manuscript for the best science fiction of the year volume 6 Mm-hmm. which I am sing- singly ill-prepared to do right now and have to sort of change that very, very quickly um, so that I can actually deliver a book, well, by the end of November, I think it'll have to be, um, mm-hmm. because you're right, I get on a plane in just under three weeks and fly off to the United States and see relatives and friends and I'm looking forward to it a great deal. It should be a huge, I mean, really, it should be a lot of fun. Uh, World Fantasy, which I know you're not going to be at, and which where you will be missed, mm-hmm. is going to be great. I was ta- I was in touch with Ellen Clagis t- uh, yesterday, and she and Karen Lord are driving down together, so I'll see them mm-hmm. on the first day. And just all those kind of just the people you really like, and Elise is coming over too, so it, there'll be a whole big podcasty hug club there. That, that, that you know, yeah. that's gr- making, really awesome. You're making me feel really good about this. I want you to know. <laughs> <laughs> Look. Oh, let's be honest. Part of it is doing that. It's kind of fun to know that you know you're going, and you know part of the fun is that well, other people aren't. And you go. Oh. I, 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 I had this odd moment of, uh, of of elation earlier this week. I got a I, I get an email from Icon, which is the oh, yeah. Iowa Science Fiction Convention, and Jane Yolen and her son Adam Stemple are the guests of honor oh, yeah. this year. And I thought that'd be great. I can go out and see Jane. And I thought I can't go to see Jane because that's World Fantasy Weekend, and I can't go to see <laughs> World Fantasy either because that's a bat mitzvah weekend. <laughs> So anybody who's trapped in or near Iowa and can't go to World Fantasy, uh, you can go to uh, Cedar Rapids and see Jane. Do people get trapped in Iowa? It sounds I like an old, all... an old horror movie, doesn't it? Trapped in I Iowa. I going to say, I think that's pretty much all you do in Iowa. <laughs> okay, I'm in trouble for that one. No, no, uh, man, it's smack. I've never been to Iowa, Gary, Gary and I'm going to bet you I, haven't either. I have been to uh, – I've, I've, I've had friends, kids who graduated from Iowa, the Iowa Writers' Workshop – is still very good. We could go off on yeah. uh, creative writing programs. And Icon was delightful. I mean, yeah. Icon is a convention that Joe and Gay Haldeman have gone to since they were okay. kids, I think. Really? Um, it's it's very informal. It's it's. I think I'd be surprised if Rusty Hevlin makes it this year because he's, uh, you know, been having some difficulty. He's not in immediate danger, but I've been hearing from Gay. But so I, I would love to go back to Icon. Yeah. Um, at some point, and I would love to see Jane Yolen, who's one of my closest friends, but. She can't. Uh, sh- she'll be in Chicago for some library thing sometime in the spring, I think. So I'll see her okay. then. Cool. Well, you know what I've been thinking about, Gary. Hmm. I've, I've been thinking about process. How's that? Okay. I'm, I've been thinking about how the last couple of podcasts we did, which evolved. You know, we did the podcast about best of the year, and then we did the podcast about buzz, right? And mm-hmm. I, I realized that it looks like a deliberate act on our behalf because they are thematically linked. I mean, one really did grow out of the other, but they came about with no planning whatsoever and no real consideration. So we yeah. had these sort of things which didn't really investigate the underpinnings of what we were discussing very well because they weren't considered essays on the subject. They were rambling bar conversations on the subject. Mm-hmm. And I think particularly the best of the year one, was the one that I think wandered the mo- failed the most in one way because I 
I have to admit, I've only read a handful of novels this year. So by commencing that, what, what I wanted out of that conversation, I think in retrospect, wasn't that you and I would lay out a series of books to recommend uh, and that would give us an overall picture of what the best of the year were or, or is, even though I know you've read much more than I have at novel length this year. And but you've that, read many times more than I have at short fiction length. But what we would do is that we would commence a conversation on the subject. Right? Mm-hmm. And not just a conversation between you and I, but a conversation between you and I and the listeners uh, to the podcast. Mm-hmm. And in amongst the, ver- you know, the various comments that have come up, because the comments show up in odd places. And I, if I were a better manager, I would probably direct them in a more coherent way. But you know, starting with say, episode 67, which was the best of the year podcast, we started calling for... Or I start, you know, started calling for recommendations mm-hmm. of best of the year books, and we discussed some of them in in you know, episode sixty seven. I will say, and I'm going to start addressing a couple of comments, and some of them you may not have seen, or because mm-hmm. I don't always do very well. But uh, Neil Harrison, our good friend from Strange Horizons and the UK and everything else, pops up yes. in the in the comments thread to sixty seven and talks about some of his best of the year, and does talk about the fact that he's not, you know, at the end of his two thousand eleven reading. Uh, recommending stuff like Mr. Fox by Helen Oyeyemi, a book which, honestly, I've barely heard about. So that's my, my failing. I, I sh- shall have to look it up. I, I read her first novel, which was very impressive, and I have not seen this one yet. Yeah, and also um, Jane Rogers' The Testament, Testament of Jassy Lamb, David Anthony Durham's The Secret Band, Rob Ziegler's Seed, Richard Morgan's The Cold Commands, a whole bunch of books. Uh, and I would direct everybody to that. Uh, the, the, to the comments on, on the, the blog which is uh, at jonathanstrand.com.au because it's an interesting look of you know, list of books and some of the ones that I've been waiting to read myself like Ian McLeod's new book mm-hmm. So and I and also I would direct you off to Tansy Rainer Roberts' blogs I know that she's done a, a, a my best of the year so far uh, and what I hope is that in coming weeks and months if we can I mean, there'll be a little blank spot where we're not recording fresh podcasts because of my travel and we're just putting up the interviews that we mm-hmm. have <laughs> i heard that gary i i know i'm sorry <laughs> no no a pop of the, the wine cork, cork probably is very appropriate on this podcast it's, it's the signature of the podcast that, <laughs> one of the many but um what I'm hoping is that we'll continue to evolve that dialogue and that we'll get more comments and recommendations from readers uh, so that we can get, if you like, a bit of a Cood Street feel uh, for what the, the, the best of the year is or has been. Uh, and I would encourage everybody who listens and all everybody who they know who doesn't listen, who they think might be interested in listening, to get onto the blog and comment and recommend your books. And we'll continue to try and bring them up in, in future so that there's that sort of dialogue, you know. There was also, and I thought I was mentioning this to you, in the comments to episode 68, the one with our good friend Ian Mond, who was a lot of fun and great company, um, mm-hmm. there's a couple of things that came up. Uh, probably one of the most interesting ones to me were com- was a comment made by uh, Matt Denault. Hi, Matt. Um, mm-hmm. And Matt talks about the pattern of the conversation we had about the best of the year and about Buzz. And the mm. really interesting point he makes is, to me, because I hadn't really thought about it, is that the more time you spend discussing works which aren't necessarily your own genuine best of the year picks, you know, you know when, when I start talking about things like this is the kind of book the field wants, whatever that may mean and what I may right. mean by that, and we can come back to that at some point if anyone's interested, um, or books that are the, you know meet some kind of imaginary right profile. I mean, like John Scalzi's book, uh, that we were talking about last the week. Fuzzy Nation. The Fuzzy yeah. Nation. What we don't do is we don't talk about the other books that we've read that may be genuinely worthy but aren't currently getting bandwidth out there in the world, you know, aren't getting discussed, you know. And I, th- I think that's perhaps something that I need to think about more, maybe something we, you know, we need to think about collectively on this podcast is do we want to spend time talking about that process, you know, the, the 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 other process, the process by which works that we're not particularly directly interested in or whatever may get to pu- to public awareness, or do we want to focus on the books that we genuinely think are worthy of attention and then highlight them? I think I think that's what we were trying to do and probably not succeeding at by making a distinction between buzz and and recommendations because I saw some of the comments too where people were reading the 
discussions of books that seem to have a lot of buzz as though they were our recommendations. And in some cases, and I, I think we tried to make this clear, mm. in some cases they were books that neither of us had read, in fact. Yeah. Um, and it's it, it's kind of a distinction. When the um, Oscars come up every spring, um, yes. There's uh, every critic I know in the States puts together a chart that lists all the possible nominees in every category and then has check marks for should win and probably will win yeah. and Dark Horse and that sort of thing. Because what they're trying to do is the same sort of thing we were trying to do, which is make a distinction between uh, your projections based on the demographics of the field, the organization of various fan communities and that sure. sort of thing, sure. what's, likely to, what's actually likely to win. And every year there are things on the ballot, which I think a lot of readers are asking, how did that get on the ballot? And the same readers are asking, why didn't that get on the ballot? And I think yeah. the buzz conversation was meant to address a bit of that. Yes. Um, and I think to some extent, those distinctions are very hard to keep in mind, um, especially if people are simply uh, copying down titles. And the people who say that they write lots of titles down when they listen to our podcasts, I uh, enormously appreciate that. It's very intimidating to hear that. <laughs> But keep in mind that some of the titles that we mentioned when we're talking about Buzz are not necessarily titles that we're either recommending or even know that much about. Yeah. Uh, they're simply ones we've heard a lot about. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a great example for me with uh, that is Aaron, uh, Aaron Morgenstern's The Night Circus, mm -hmm. which I think it's The Night Circus, which uh, Niall, Neil recommends. And, and uh, it's, it's got great made... press. It's got fantastic press. And yeah, Adrian Martini, our own Adrian Martini at Locus, loved it. Yeah. And it's one of those books. And as a matter of fact, uh, not to quote another reviewer, although I like Adrian quite a bit, um, she's, she'd said something at the beginning of the review, which is exactly what I feel. When you, when you get a book that comes with so many hyperbolic blurbs mm -hmm. on it, you just want to not like it. Yes. You just want true. to, come on. <laughs> you know, and she said, no, this really deserves it. And I've had that same feeling before where, yeah. you, uh, where you read a book which is, which looks like it's overhyped, and then it turns out, well, it's not actually overhyped. Uh, I had that reaction to um, um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that came with such a weight of publicity of and course, blurbs yeah. and that sort of thing. And I started reading it, and I said, this is actually probably better than the blurb said it was. <laughs> well, see, my thing with The Night Circus is it's a circus story. And like I said on the podcast, I don't really like circus stories. But the problem with my saying that, I guess, is, I mean, I think it's a legitimate thing for me to say, but it does potentially truncate the conversation about that book, which really isn't my, my goal. It's more along the lines of, I acknowledge there's an enormous amount of, of discussion about it and a lot of considered recommendation of it, but it doesn't particularly appeal to me as a reader. Um, and so, yeah, that's one of the things that comes into this. And also, I mean, we've always said that these, these podcasts are done off the cuff, that they are more the equivalent of a bar conversation than the equivalent of a considered essay on any subject. And certainly, you know, we don't do any preparation for them. We're not off researching or whatever else. We just start. And more often than not, even with the best of the year podcast, we didn't prepare for it. You know, I didn't sit around making lists and thinking about what was out and everything else. It's what, what hit my, hit my flu-ridden mind on the morning. Well, same thing in, in case my wine-addled brain, perhaps. Uh, but I, I see these as more like panel discussions at a con, where every panel discussion I've ever been on about any topic, five minutes after the panel has dissolved and the room is emptied, I think of three or four things that were really the most important things yeah. I could have talked about. Yes. And it just didn't <laughs> uh, somebody pointed out that we were talking about baseball novels, and we didn't. Yes, mention and I, I mentioned yeah. uh, Nancy Willard's Things Invisible to yeah. See. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't think at, until 10 minutes after the podcast of uh, Karen Joy Fowler's The Sweetest Season, even though it's not really a fantasy or science fiction uh, novel, it certainly is an important novel you know, written by a woman about baseball, which understands baseball. Uh, yeah. And so, so yeah, there are always – every podcast I end up thinking what I think after every panel discussion. I should have thought of that then. Yeah. Um, and uh, there have been panel discussions literally where I want to – tell people leaving the room, stop, come back, I forgot. Well, the other thing, I know this happens when we're recording, because it crosses my mind as a process of the recording, is that we, we, we partly pursue some train of thought, and then it kind of drifts and changes, and suddenly you're discussing something else. 
uh, or you know, like maybe you know something more about something than I do, and we you know talk about it for a little while, and we come to about well, what do I have to come back on it? Not very much, and just suddenly we drift somewhere else. And I could imagine that that's sort of let you know a, a less coherent thing to experience as a listener. I mean, one of the podcasts that I listen to religiously almost is This American Life, mm-hmm. and, I, and I don't know if you're familiar with it. I am. I've listened to it a few times. And that's, you know, it's not a podcast. It's a, a professionally produced radio show with a top-notch journalist. And exactly. it's, it's researched, it's written, it's prepared. I'm willing to bet there's a very coherent script written for it and all that kind of thing. And if I were to write an essay on any of these subjects that we touch on, I'm sure that I would say something different. than uh, I mean, maybe not fundamentally different, but I'd also prepare. I mean, to go back to Matt Denault's comments, I mean, he says, you know, what handicapping avoids is that what he thinks is the most more interesting to- topic, the question of what two widely read, experienced evaluators of speculative fiction did in fact think were some of the best books of the year, and why. Now, the problem mm-hmm. with that statement is that as of the 1st of October 2011, certainly at novel length, as I've said, I'm not widely read. So mm-hmm. I can't comment on two-thirds of the novels written in the, or published in the field this, this year, or even nine-tenths of the novels. I can it, sort of do a general indication. And some of the reason why I pointed to Buzz at that point is an acknowledgement of that. It's like, well, people are talking about Reamed by Neil Stevenson, or people are talking about um, The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern. And I've well, not read either of those books. No. I've read I've, I've read the Stevenson. Well, my problem is, is similar to yours. You're... you're, you're under the weight of doing massive numbers of short stories and novellas and short novels and that sort of thing. Um, my issue at the end of the year, especially when we start these discussions about putting together the Locust Recommended Reading List, is realizing that, um, okay, there's a book which I know, and The Night Circus is a good example, but I really want to read that. It sounds, mm-hmm. everything I've read about it from people I respect sounds very exciting. Um, and yet, I didn't it was not on my review pile it was on you know adrian's and i was going through what was on my pile yeah the problem is i can't read all the other books that are uh, uh that are being reviewed by other people i try to read as many as i can sure within the space of deadline and the books i do end up reading as as i'm sure you've noticed as reviews editors aren't all the best of the year no no i mean i remember in fact what i remember the very first year that i joined locus which was in i joined in 1997 in may and Charles despairingly asked, you know, was, was talking about needing reviewers for books that nobody else wanted to read. So mm. I did my first column, I think, in August of 97, where I read such undesirable writers as, as Scott Westerfeld. Mm. <laughs> yeah, because I reviewed his first novel for Locus. And, yeah, along with a whole bunch of other books uh, at the time. Now, I had a lot of reading time available to me. Charles wanted me to review six or seven books a month and was deliberately picking all the books that he thought we should have a look at that nobody mm-hmm. else was interested in looking at. So I was, by, by, you know, by the nature of what I was doing, not reading, obviously, the best of the year. Um, it wasn't what Charles thought would be the best of the year. Maybe I would discover a best of the year title and bring it to everybody else's attention. And that did happen, I think, a little bit. And sort of Charles would then have those books you know, re-reviewed by real reviewers, mm-hmm. um, which is a useful process for the magazine. But goes to show that we read differently than the way people you know, think we do. And so, I mean, I can talk to you about some things now about uh, that I couldn't, you know, while well, I can't talk about other things. I could talk about, say, the best novellas of the year. Mm-hmm. reasonably coherently at the moment I think uh, and my current problem actually for my best of the year is that I have about five no, you know, novellas that I would very happily and comfortably include in my year's best that I physically cannot mm-hmm. I mean uh, just to sort of take a sidestep there's a fantastic new kids Johnson novella in Asimov's uh, Bridge Across the Mist which I would recommend very 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 highly uh, and the Washington Science Fiction Society have just published a Catherine Valenti novella, which I was reading last night, and is just terrific. Uh, Brad Denton has a story in Down These Mean Streets uh, uh, called The Adakian Eagle, which is fantastic. Uh, then, of course, there's Peter Straub's Ballad of Ballard and Sandrine, which always trips off my tongue badly because the ballad and ballard just doesn't sound right no. to me. Um, and also a Paul, a Paul McCauley story called The Choice that was in Asimov's earlier in the year, all of which stand amongst the best novellas of the year. Fantastic stuff. But I haven't read, as I say, well, I mean, Reamed. I haven't read Reamed, you know. Well, but your job right now is, uh, in, in fairness to you, is you have to put together an anthology of short fiction which says the best of the year. Oh, sure. And 
your job is to do comparative reading. Yeah. And I think that uh, very few reviewers uh, of, of book length books, especially if they're the length of, 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 of the Neil Stevenson novel, uh, are going to be able to. We, we, we can compare with other things we've read, yeah. but I can't compare with things that I think are probably really terrific that are out there, some of which have no buzz at all. Yeah. One of the books which is on my pile to read, and it's it's one, and it's just my fault, I missed uh, the deadline for reviewing it, uh, it's a new novel by Tanana Reeve-Dew. Yeah. And Tanana Reeve-Dew doesn't get much discussion in this field at all, and yet she's written a couple of terrific, essentially, ghost stories, African-American ghost stories, um, and she's a very talented writer. Sure. Uh, uh, and I, I think that's something which, you know, within the context of looking at supernatural fiction, which I look at in a limited way anyway, that could be a very important book. I haven't heard anybody talking about it. Well, I mean, that's interesting because I, I wonder if some of it's because of because of where we look for discussion of w- books. I mean, uh, Tanana Reeve uh, Jew, which I, I thought was pronounced Dwey, but it goes to show what I know. But Tanana Reeve Jew um, writes close you know you say ghost stories that kind of a thing and they're mm. very much part of the field but they're not science fiction or even straight fantasy and they're they're between fantasy and horror or dark fantasy or whatever else yeah they're, i just i just wonder if that's why they don't get as much discussion even though now that i think about it i'm not trying to talk over your point and if i'm stepping on your subject tell me we're mm. being more careful today gary um mm. <laughs> she is a significant pl- a part of the non-Caucasian women who are writing in the field at the moment, of which there are far mm-hmm. more than I'm aware of, you know, than I, there were 20 years ago. I mean, I remember when I first became aware of the field as an active thing, you know, rather than sort of just a passively reading an interest. Uh, Octavia Butler would have been the one non-Caucasian f- female writer I might have immediately thought of. Yeah. And now I could, I could name half a dozen without any real you know, trouble. Yeah. Which then also tells me that if, if I can name half a dozen off the top of my head without there being any problem, then there are a lot more. And, I mean, you know, just to do it, I mean, obviously, Karen Lord, Nettie Okorafor, mm. uh, Nalo Hopkinson, Tanan Reeve Dwey, um, uh, Nora Jemison. And that's really with just – and now everyone will go, well, you said half a dozen, that's only five. Well, there's – and there are a lot more out there, but here's another thing. You're right. Uh, in, in the case of Tanana Reeve-Dew, and I'm pretty sure that was the way she pronounced the name the one time I met her. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. Was, um, and she was a successful columnist in Miami, and she more or less had a, her novels have been published on the edge of mainstream marketing, which also is a way of sort of making it less visible to our community, unfortunately, and that happens with a lot of good books. Um but there also is a sense that uh, there's a whole world out there, for example, and I've, I, I, I've said this many times, I don't read what they now call urban fantasy. Yeah. I don't read all the romantic vampire and werewolf and, uh, and, and, and I don't know if there are romantic zombies out there or not. <laughs> I'm sure. But I'm still convinced. Amelia Beamer wrote a romantic. Well, yes. Well, those are uh, sexy zombies, romantic zombies. We can talk about the distinction, <laughs> but yes. The Loving Dead certainly got at the idea. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, Amelia's a friend of ours. Nightshade Books is a friend of ours. We're, we're aware of that. It was the only zombie novel I read that year. The only zombie novel I read this year was Daryl Gregory's because I like to follow Daryl Gregory. He's a very interesting writer who never does the same thing twice. But still, in that vast world of paperback urban romance novels that look absolutely unappealing, I'm convinced there are some brilliant novels in that which I will never hear about. And I don't read Romantic Times, so I don't know, you know, I don't know what's out there. I know I'm missing a whole field of possibly brilliant writers in an area which I just can't begin to cover. Yeah, I think it's true. <sighs> There's something else I'm about to do. What else were we discussing there, Gary? Because I don't want to sort of jump off the train of thought before I move on. Well, there was a point you were making in in in, in, uh, in, in one of the comments about about the uh, the new wave and how that is perceived well, 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 through its lens. Yeah. Well, let me give you. Um, I'll, I'll share, share with re- listeners the comment that we received uh, mm. as it pertains to the thing. Susan Loyal, you can read the whole comment on our blog, wrote to us back on the 26th of September. May I also say for the record that when you talk about the new wave, I don't recognize the new wave that I lived through and thought I read and loved. I have a vivid memory of being an undergraduate and coming home with a nice fresh copy of Again Dangerous Visions and thumbing through the volume to decide where to start and falling into When It Changed. 
Herein followed a quotation from Harlan Ellison's introduction to the story. As far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned, the best writers in SF today are the women. Most of them are represented in this volume. Kate Wilhelm, Ursula Le Guin, Josephine Saxton, Lee Hoffman, Joanna, and others were featured in the original Dangerous Visions, Sonia Dorman, Carol M. Schwiller, Miriam Allen DeFord. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Susan then continues, I'd have to add James Tiptree to the list, present, present in a game Dangerous Visions, but then known only by Persona. And those writers were the core of the new wave I experienced, along with Samuel Delaney and Vonnegut and Pynchon, who achieved the genre, uh, escaped the genre shelving, and Damon Knight's Orbit series and Stand on Zanzibar. Grant you, historical periods you live, th- you, know, you live through are always experienced fractally and fractionally. They get codified later and always by the winners. But what the heck happened at a movement I associated primarily with women, you associate primarily with men, who won and why? Can we recount the vote? Mm. And I'm going, okay, well, that made me stop because I guess the first thing that I'm going to completely agree with Susan about is that we do experience it personally and we do experience it fractally so that for me, a reader born in 1964 who read his first science fiction novel in 1972 and wouldn't have read anything by any of the new wave till at least... 1976 or so when it was all well and truly done done and dusted and wouldn't have been aware of the concept of the new wave uh really probably until four years after that is my guess um my view is sort of scattered and historical and it's only trying to piece it together after the fact uh and trying to understand it it doesn't seem like it was a particularly coherent thing as it happened how does it gel for your experience well, I was old enough to read the new wave and be very excited about it. I, this is one of the things where if I were if I were thinking things through and writing an academic essay about it, I would make an argument that the new wave, as it's generally thought of in science fiction histories, with Moorcock taking over New Worlds in 1964, um, and then uh, three years later, uh, Ellison's Dangerous Visions, um, one of the things I would say is that I don't... Uh, I, Dangerous Visions, I think, is a terrific anthology, and I mm. think, again, Dangerous Visions, in some ways, is a better anthology. It didn't introduce the new wave to American readers, though, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, there, because I was, I was okay, um, a teenage reader at that time, and I was a teenage reader who found myself really attracted to Faulkner and Joyce and wondered why there wasn't anything in this field that looked like Faulkner or Joyce or Virginia Woolf or any of those writers that sure. I was kind of enamored of just for their uh, stylistic and, uh, and, and and structural tricks. And by the time uh, Dangerous Visions came along, it was in terms of subject matter, in terms of being able to deal, for example, frankly, with sure. sexuality and so forth and so on, it was groundbreaking. In the 60s, taboo-breaking was a big thing. Yeah. But as a reader, okay, my theory is that the new wave was introduced to the United States readership, the science fiction readership, not by Harlan Ellison, but I'm trying to think by three editors before Harlan Ellison. Let, let me guess. Uh, one of which yep. uh, was Damon Knight with the Orbit series. Uh, probably uh, equally important in terms of widespread attention was uh, Judith Merrill mm-hmm. in her year's best anthologies, going back to about 1960 and 62, were including some of the earliest uh, Ballard stories and Aldous stories and. Um, um, and the third one, who is somebody that nobody gives credit to anymore, was Seals Goldsmith, who started editing both Amazing and Fantastic, I think, in 1958. Seal and or Seely? Seals. Oh, I think it's pronounced Seal. Uh, is it? Okay. Her la- she, she, I, I'm not sure. You know what? Um, okay. Somebody, well, I'm sure, correct us on that. But, uh, you know, by, by the early 60s, um, Goldsmith was publishing, actually, she was publishing early, the early Ursula Le Guin stories. Uh, she was publishing uh, Tom Dish, Zelazny, Aldous, uh, David Bunch. These were things that are appearing between 62 and 66, um, you know, in the decade before. So, yeah. and, and Judith Merrill was including these writers, and I think uh, probably Pamela Zolin and others in her year's best anthologies going back to the 60s. So the average science fiction writer reader in the 60s, and as far as I know, Almost every science fiction reader in the in the 60s was reading the Judy Merrill anthologies. That was the year's best, yeah. and she from the beginning was doing oddball things with it. She was there were one of her year's best anthologies had an Ionesco play in it. One had a pogo cartoon strip <laughs> in it. Uh, she was stretching the definition of science fiction in in ways beyond really what the new wave did. 
Yeah. And she was a real champion of, of, of Ballard and, 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 and Dorman and Zoline uh, and some of the other writers. And uh, so I think that by the time Dangerous Visions came along, the American readership was ready for it. Yeah. They were anxious to see it and they were glad somebody had done it. But they were not shocked by seeing all these writers they'd never heard of because uh, Merrill and Goldsmith and, uh, and, um, and Damon Knight had been publishing these people for four or five or six years before yeah. that. Okay. I... I did a little bit of research about some of this stuff because I was curious. Uh, I mean, Harlan's comment particularly made me sort of stop and think. And I, I did go back because I was curious, were there a lot of women writers that I wasn't aware of? Because all the names that I've heard so far are ones that I'm familiar with. And in fact, ones that in many cases I respect a great deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've certainly uh, know and love the work of, of Wilhelm and Le Guin and Russ and... Um, M. Schwiller particularly, I'm less familiar with Josephine Saxton, who I know, just for the record, because I was looking at this obsessively for various reasons, we may come back to you later, has just had a whole bunch of her novels reissued as ebooks, just uh-huh. literally yesterday or the day before. So you can now access about, I think about four of, the no- of her novels have come out, which is an encouraging thing to see happen. Um, but I, I, I wonder, I was, what I was wondering about was, Susan makes this point that she primarily saw the new wave as being led by women writers. And I thought, well, were there more women writers there than there are now or, or than there had been before? And what I began to get the feeling was I looked at Dangerous Visions and Again, Dangerous Visions, and about 10%, I think it's 12%, 12% of the contributors to Dangerous Visions and Again, Dangerous Visions were women, which by modern standards would see you being drummed out of the field, frankly, as being horrendously sexist. It just so mm-hmm. happens, though, that those writers are some of the greatest writers we've ever had in the terms of Le Guin, Russ, Tiptree, uh, Emschwiller, I mean, who anybody would, would put, at, at the, and Wilhelm, who anyone would put at the very forefront of our field. And it doesn't sort of seem to gel with, I mean, it does seem, uh, Andy Wheeler, who used to be the editor at S- the SF Book Club, mm-hmm. and who uh, blogs as uh, uh, at the antique musings of GBH Hornswoggler, makes the point uh, that uh, arguably there are two different new waves anyway. There was the British new wave and the American new wave. They happened slightly out of sync with one another and weren't really that related at all. And that the classic new wave, if you like, you know, uh, rather than the new new wave, uh, was what happened in London around particularly Moorcock and Ballard as two individuals uh, uh, interacting with one another and wanting to bring the sensibility that had been happening in art and music, painting, whatever else, in the previous 30 or 40 years into science fiction to make it grow up, f- to make it uh, focus on quote-unquote inner space and all that kind of thing. And there was a group of writers are, that, that they accumulated around them. Uh, you know, And they included, you know, Dish, and they included... Um, Brunner, and they included uh, Delaney and other people, and in some cases, mm-hmm. people who were there for their own purposes. I mean, Delaney, whether he, I mean, he was genuinely a new wave writer, but I, I think was probably a bit more su generous than, if that's the right pronoun- pronunciation, than that. I mean, he was really, Delaney mm-hmm. was far more busy being Delaney than he was busy being new wave. Uh, and in fact, one of the interesting points I saw touched on somewhere was that that tends to be the truth of a lot, a lot of this anyway. Uh, you get a few. Um, uh, evangelists for, for a movement and everybody else is really doing their own thing so the the movement to live through is much less coherent uh, but, I, but I wonder if you know like the, the true history of the field if there is such a thing is that there were very few women in the 30s and 40s there was a thin crust in terms of numbers in the 50s slightly more prominent in the 60s and 70s and then growing beyond that to what's a much more healthy kind of situation now um and if um, we're we also have a uh, we're also conflating two different things that happen at the same time, new wave science fiction and feminist science fiction, both of which grew at the same time, but not all of the feminist science fiction was new wave. Does that sound no? Reasonable? And I think that um, uh, I think that's an issue. Which one of the problems when you start trying to define the history of the field in terms of movements? Yeah, is that you have a core of important writers or interesting writers who may have not been attached to any particular movement, who may have, in some cases, dipped in and out of science fiction. I don't know if I could defend this or not, but there were some interesting women writers in the 50s who wrote in multiple genres. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, one of the things that um, uh, bothers me a little bit about the reputation of Lee Brackett is that it's based almost entirely on her, pro- her pro- 
Planet Stories stories. Well, and I, yet I, she was writing. She was writing screenplays. She was sure. writing the Falkman. She was writing mystery novels. She eventually wrote the screen treatment for the. And she wrote what I think is one of the outstanding sort of post-nuclear novels of the fifties, The Long Tomorrow. Yeah. And yet, her she's been attached to the pulp movement partly because of her. Um, association, I suppose, her longtime marriage to Edmund Hamilton, her sure. long association with Planet Stories, and so forth and so on. Uh, uh, here's another name that nobody brings up anymore at all: Miriam Allen DeFord. Because uh, I don't think, well, as far actually, as I know, let me interrupt you. She's on our comments page. Oh, she is. She is. So anyway, yeah, continue. So people well, don't bring well, see if I'm mistaken, because I don't recall her writing a science fiction novel. She'd written crime novels. She'd written historical novels. She wrote a book about Bonnie and Clyde. She wrote some terrific short stories in the 50s, and I think had them collected. But if I'm not mistaken, I don't know of a Miriam Allen DeFord science fiction novel. And one of the things that happens in this field is you get your name through writing novels. This is the very point that commenter Matt Denault makes, isn't it? You know, I mean, uh, we've got some very, very intelligent commentators where, he, where he's addressing... Um, Susan's question about, you know, who gets to pick the winners and losers, and his mm -hmm. suggestion is that in our field, in the 21st century at least, the winners are the novelists because novels get more attention, and if you look at the successful women writers of the New Wave period, brilliant short story writers, Le Guin has written a handful, I mean more than a handful, a shelf full of spectacular novels. Yeah. Russ has at least one all-time classic novel to hang her name on. In, t in terms of the female man, as well as some other fantastic work. I'd but say that, three or four and a couple yeah, of great novellas, yeah. too. But, but, I mean, in terms of, um, she's got that novel sitting there. Uh, and the ones who don't, the Josephine Saxtons, the Carol M. Schwillers, the Sonia Dormans, the Miriam DeFords, they're the ones who are perhaps d discussed a lot less because there's not an obvious book to point at. And Pamela Zeline, whose name comes up so often, I mean, she's had one book out, I believe, in her entire in her career. Well, mm -hmm. career, which is a collection of maybe six stories or something. And that's most of her science fiction output. But the fact that it's wonderful work, the fact that it's for the volume of work very uh, high profile, that, that it doesn't, you know, sort of, that it doesn't compete volume wise and volume gets attention. It doesn't, although uh, one thing I would say about Pamela Zeline is I would, uh, I mean, her reputation rests very heavily on. Uh, the Heat Death of the Universe, because it's simply because it's been anthologized so many times. And if you're a short fiction writer, the only chance you have of gaining a reputation comparable to that of a novelist is to be anthologized an awful lot. Yeah. And and for many people, for for, for myself, for years, and maybe even now, I don't know, if somebody asked me to, to, to name the definitive new wave story, yeah. in all its implications, that is, is it really genre or not genre? How much mainstream is it? How much stream of consciousness is in it? Uh, the Heat Death of the Universe might be the, the one I would think of. So she has a, a strong reputation in that area. But again, uh, that comes from, uh, from from its being an iconic story. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you could say the same thing for Daniel Keyes, who was never attached to any movement. I mean, he was he was part of the um, Hydro Club in New York. He knew yeah. science fiction people. He edited a couple of science fiction magazines. Um had Flowers for Algernon not been novel, not been novelized and made into a movie, uh, he would be remembered for exactly one story. Yeah. Well, I know that um, I mean, you're talking about Celia Gold. Uh, no, about uh, Seal Moore. No, Lee Brackett. That's right. Mo hmm. Moorcock is on record as having said that Brackett, Seal Moore, Judy, Judy Merrill, and Celia Goldsmith, the two writers, two editors, are the real godmothers of the new wave. Um, okay, and I good for him. Absolutely. And I can um, see that point. Um, I don't know how they, whether, the, I see the influence of Brackett more on Moorcock. I don't know whether I see it on the other women writers, though. You know, I don't know if I see Brackett and Moore in Le Guin or Tiptree or Russ as much. Well, a lot of these people are... Uh, they were like they were working writers. They were trying to make a living, however they could. If they could get in Hollywood. <clears throat> uh, Mary Allen DeFord, I know, wrote a book about Bonnie and Clyde, which was probably may very well have been yeah. the best-selling thing she ever wrote. Uh, so I think to some extent there is Lee Hoffman. I think was another one who wrote westerns. Uh, Lee Brackett wrote westerns. Yeah. Carol Imschwiller wrote a western. <clears throat> so. Yes. Uh, whether, whether those influences, I don't know, tracking influences like that is very difficult to do um, because I've had any number of cases where I've either written an article or talked to a writer about some very obvious influence and it turns out to be a story they've never read. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I mean it, it, yeah. 
Well, a recent example that came up with Paolo, Gallup, uh, Paolo Bacigalupi um, with his story uh, Pump 6, yeah. which looks a lot like there are a lot of common assumptions in that, as in C.M. Kornbluth's The Marching Morons. Yeah. And I talked to him about it once, and he said, everybody says that, and I should read that story someday. <laughs> well, so much for influence. I mean, well, <laughs> yes and no. Yes and no, Gary, and I'll tell you why. This is the idea that I have. This is not fact. Those ideas particularly from very influential, important stories and novels, seep into the field. And you can pick up the influence of them without necessarily have cons having consumed the actual progenitor work. I think that's true. I absolutely think that there are ideas that just sort of, uh, you know, enter into the uh, consciousness of the field. And in some cases, the source story <clears throat> is not widely read or, or not widely remembered. One one classic example of that, uh, which the Sideways Awards people are well aware of, is Murray Leinster's story, Sideways in Time. Yeah. Uh, which is a classic of its... Uh, it, it's it's not bad. I mean, it's, it, Murray Leinster you know, was a very, very competent writer. Yeah. But the idea of parallel universes or of crossing from one alternate history into another, uh, you know, became so widespread in the field. And I'm sure that there was some version of it before that. But at the time that Leinster wrote that story, which I think was published when F. Orland Tremaine was editing, oh, probably maybe amazing or astounding. It was, it was supposed to be supposed to be a thought variant story. It was supposed to be a radical new idea, and it worked. And the idea, even though it might have been here and there before, the idea caught on in the field and has just snowballed ever since. Mm. To, and it certainly snowballed all the way into. Um, Movies like Back to the Future. Here's another example. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, I did not see this new TV series, which uh, I was at the hospital with my niece. New TV series here in the States called Terra Nova. It's yeah. Sp Spielberg is one of the producers. It deals, and uh, the reviews I've read uh, indicated that, well, you know, it's largely Dawson's Creek once you get there. But the beginning part is set in this horrible, polluted, overpopulated, depleted future causes a group of people to escape back to uh, prehistoric times and, and, and try to set up uh, a new civilization. So it, it, it's a, you know, it's a new planet to colonize, yep. effectively. Mm. And I gather the TV series even makes some uh, uh, nod toward, well, they're actually going into a different history, so they're not going to change our history, they'll change some other world's history. Yeah. Now, I haven't seen the series at all, but <clears throat> another writer who seems to have faded from view entirely is Julian May, who in the early 80s... Yep published a series called The Saga of the Pliocene Exile. Yep. Began with a novel called The Many Colored Land. Oh, Guess what? I remember, so, the, yeah, I remember the Saga of the Pleistocene Exile. Yeah, it's about a group of people from the future who decide that they want to escape and set up a new civilization in, in, in the Pliocene. Yep. Uh, it sounds to me like the same premise of that series. I don't know if it's been commented on in blogs or not. Um, and Julian May was another one of those interesting writers who had written some... Uh, at least one terrific story in the 40s called Dune Roller. Yeah. But she was a fairly regular contributor to the magazines. Most of the people in the fan community during that period knew her as Judy Dickty, as the yes. wife of Ted Dickty, who edited the first uh, yeah. year's best anthology. And then she disappeared until the 80s and came out with this, uh, you know, uh, very ambitious uh, yes. series of volumes, uh, followed it with some other uh, things. She had aliens back in the Pliocene. Uh, it was part of a weird movement during that period where science fiction decided it wanted to do dinosaurs. Yeah. Harry Harrison had his big West of Eden trilogy. And yet I don't hear anybody talking about Julian May much anymore. Well, I was about to say that. I mean, I don't want to get too far away from – I don't know if we've resolved our discussion about the new wave yet. But mm. um, Julian May, I mean, she's an 80-year-old woman writer who's been writing since – Certainly the mid-50s, as you say, or in fact, the 1950s, yeah. since 1950. I think before that. 19, 1950 was the year that June Roller came out in Astounding. Okay, that was... Uh, so certainly since 1950. So she's been writing in the field for 60 years. She's 80 years old. She's been active consistently up until certainly 2006-07 when her last novel came out. Mm-hmm. Do we talk about her much? I mean, I don't remember... I don't know that we do. I, th I think, like, what, the, the first quartet of the, of the Plasticine Exile... I shouldn't call it that, but that's why I always called it when I was a kid. And I mean, I mm. love the many colored land and the golden, the golden talk and the non king. But between you and I, I never read the adversary. It just, I just could not read that book. Um, mm -hmm. And then 
you know, she uh, came back to it, to it as a related angle with the Galactic Milieu series and then the other ones, and she collaborated with... In fact, do you remember she did a trilogy where like, she collaborated with Marion Zimmer Bradley and Andre Norton? Yes, I remember that. Which I is a very odd trio of writers to get in one particular volume. And, and where does Marion Zimmer Bradley sit in the new wave? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't see her as being associated with the new wave uh, in that sense. I think... To get back to Julian May for a minute, yeah. I think one of the things we talked about how people people's reputations are preserved by the communities in which they had those reputations. And yeah. for a good chunk of her life, uh, Julian until the Pliocene Exile books, Ju, uh, Julian May, who I never met, I met uh, Dicty once, yeah. was mostly known in the fan community. She was a fairly major figure in the fan community, yeah. I gather, and she was. Um, she stopped writing. Um, I, I know they raised a family and various sorts of things like that. The two women writers who I think of, the two contemporary living American writers that I think of as having actually been part of the new wave are, are Kit Reed and Carol Inchwiller, Yeah. who are both still writing, very active, yes. you know, very much uh, doing uh, their own thing. And um, in, in Carol Imfuller's case, and we spent a good chunk of an earlier podcast on her, so we don't sure. want to go on yeah, yeah, yeah. about it again. Although, but you know, what she did was, to some extent, she took the experimental uh, narrative techniques of the new wave right into literary fiction, which yeah. is one of the reasons that Carol seems to have almost disappeared from the field for a period of time after her involvement in the new wave and after um, the death of her husband, obviously, when she w w went through a difficult period. But a lot of her publications after that were in literary magazines, and they were very... Uh, interesting experimental kinds of fiction. All this stuff shows up in the collected stories of Carol mm -hmm. Inchwiller, which people should go look at. And then later in life, she started thinking, this is interesting. I can, I'm interested in writing science fictional things again or imaginary yeah. war yeah. things again. And her fiction began to look more familiar to us again. Here's a question. Who's more forgotten today? Um, a, yeah, Carol Inchwiller or John Brunner? We're down to the problem of who you're talking to. Yeah, well, yes. Um, I mean, if, if because Carol Imshwiller, remember, Carol Imshwiller had written some interesting novels. She'd written yes. a Western novel. She'd written a young adult novel called Mr. Boots. Uh, among that readership, there's an interesting readership out there of sort of kind of uh, Western slash, slash fantasy slash science fiction. Molly Gloss is one of these writers, an excellent writer. Um, and I think within that world, Carol Imshwiller is a major, major figure. Yeah. Um, with, is, is Carol Imshwiller somebody that people nostalgically talk about? I remember reading that when I was a kid and astounding. Probably not. Yeah. Uh, and I think Brunner is in the in, in the latter category. There's also the issue that Brunner was a novelist who wrote sure, some major sure. novels that were clearly in the middle of the science fiction field, and nothing, none of Carol's novels, at least, were clearly in the middle of the science fiction field or the science fiction community the way Brunner was. Yeah. Yeah. And how about somebody like because I mean. I, I, I confess, I mean, this morning after I, I arose, because my family are out, and I went out and I had breakfast, and I sat reading about the new wave, mm -hmm. and I saw these names go past that I read tw 20 or 30 years ago, and I haven't thought about since, truthfully. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of them was um, Sladek, John Sladek. You know, I haven't thought about him either. Um, uh, and, and that's how yeah. I felt, I should say, when, when Ian mentioned Tom Dish last week. I was going, wow, I like Tom Dish. I just haven't thought about Tom Dish in a long, long time. And yet, I mean, Sladek wrote a, a small handful of fantastic books. Mm -hmm. um, and now, partly because he's obviously deceased and everything else, seems completely forgotten. I think that's true. Maybe very well true. I don't know if anything of his. I don't know. Is, is he in print in the um, in the new uh, Golanx E series? Yeah, yeah. They've, they've brought uh, the, I think Roderick at random and Roderick back into print. Uh, and maybe TikTok, I think. Uh huh. Well, I remember one of the things, this is another way of talking about what you um, think about when you think about um, the new wave, because I'm trying to remember the title of his novel that was part of the, um, oh, it was The Reproductive System, it was his first yeah. novel, I think. Yeah. Um, and as I recall, didn't Terry Carr publish that as an ace special? Mm, you're going, I don't know, I don't remember. I'd have I to, I'd be cheating, I'd be now looking it up on Wikipedia, and I don't know. Okay, <laughs> I know. I know the American title was Mechasm. Yes, like yes, that. it was Mechasm. Yes, in 1968. And, and I think that that's another that's another way of perceiving the new wave. You can look at a new wave entirely legitimately 
in terms of Terry Carr's eight specials. Yeah. Um, starting certainly with the left hand of darkness. Sure, of course, yeah. Uh, and, and and there's a whole you know. So, so I, I guess what I'm going at is that the new wave as a historical moment in science fiction, which has been uh, chronicled by uh, Colin Greenland and uh, the Entropy Effect, uh, as as literary history was that thing that happened with Moorcock and New Worlds in the 60s. There are other new waves that are not quite the same thing. Harlan Ellison's Dangerous Visions is not quite the same as that. Terry Carr's uh, Ace Discoveries is not quite the same thing as that. Yeah. Uh, and yet, they're all legitimately new waves in the sense that they brought a new sensibility on, into the readers of science fiction when they were editing. Yeah. I'm going to jump across a second to another candidate for my, my secret anthology of uh, women who wrote science fiction who are now over 80. Mm-hmm. And that's the strange case of Kate Wilhelm, who gets mentioned in, in our comments field, and who I've read and enjoyed for a great, uh, you know, a great length of time. Tell me, forgotten? I don't think so. Um, I hope not, anyway. Every time I read a new novel about clones, and that includes mm-hmm. things like Never Let Me Go, I'm thinking, uh, where late the sweet birds sang, Same. sort of covered all this territory in, 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 with great insight and empathy. Uh, 30 years before uh, this thing came along. I don't know if it's still being read. It seems to me that's one of those novels that had such an impact on me. Like, okay, this is a clone novel. I don't need to read anymore. And I don't know if other people feel that way. I mean, I don't know if it's still current. Uh, I'll I'll tell you why I think she's forgotten in our field. Mm -hmm. Because the core of her writing for the last 20 years has been as a mystery writer. Well, that's true, too. And I was surprised that it's actually 20 years. Um, But I, I first encountered... Um, Wilhelm as a short fiction writer in the uh, mid-80s with a story mm-hmm. which remains one of my favorite stories of all time, uh, a story called Strangeness, Charm, and Spin. I don't which, think I know that. Which was in the, the great, the classic Michael Bishop anthology, Light Years and Dark. Oh, yes. Uh, which everybody who hasn't read has to go off and now try and find used and then realize just how, it, as I keep saying, it changed my entire reading for my entire life, because this is where I first encountered Wilhelm. That led me to go off and get Winter Beach. I mean, I'd read a bunch of her, her novels, probably eight or ten of them, before I ever came across Where Late the, the Sweet Bird Sang. Because I read, um, oh, what a song with Welcome Chaos, Heisman's Pets, Crazy Time, Cambio Bay, um, The Winter Beach. Brilliant, brilliant, awesome books. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't get talked about much. And at one point, not, not, not at one point, at several points, uh, particularly when I was very busy doing um, uh, editing and you know, collections of authors' works, you know, best yeah. ofs. I tried to sell publishers on the idea of doing a best of Kate Wilhelm because, for my money, it's desperately overdue. I mean, there's this mm-hmm. person who's written, oh, certainly 100, 120 short stories stretching from 19, mid-1950s up till today because, I mean, she's had stuff in, even this year in um, FNSF. She appears there semi-regularly. Uh, and for some reason, there's a feel, you know, sort of people aren't aware of her. They're not reading her. And I, uh, I've, I've heard some discussion of where late the sweet birds sing are saying, uh, which is mm. a, great, a great novel, but it's not by any means either the only significant work that Wilhelm ever wrote, nor even necessarily the most typical work she ever wrote. Um, no, but that's the one. It, it's a little bit like uh, how up and, in fact, to this day, I confess it, and I apologize if you're listening, but. My, my exposure to Cecilia Holland is Floating Worlds. And Floating Worlds, I'm willing to bet, is not a typical ex, uh, 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 experience of reading a Cecilia Holland novel. Um, it is and it isn't. I mean, it's, it's certainly in terms of how she handles characters moving through a landscape, which is something she does very well in all of her fiction. It gets at that. And I know that uh, she was... Uh, she wrote... Uh, I, I don't know. I, 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 Cecilia will let me say this. I mean, she was, I think, supposed to be writing a historical novel, and, and she's a assiduous researcher, and I believe just, you know, wasn't getting the research done and decided to make up the world. Yeah. So she, she built a world based on her knowledge of histor- historical fiction, and it is it's it's it is in the Golanx series. It's been in the yeah. Golanx classic reprints before of the new E-series. And and yet she's always been... That's another interesting thing, and we're, we're getting a pattern here of women writers who write in multiple genres. We, mm-hmm. we talked about Kate Wilhelm and, and Lee Brackett and DeFord. And now Cecilia Holland is one of, I have no doubt, uh, no hesitation, one of the great American historical novelists of the, of the 20th century. I guess we can now say 21st. 
there have been fantastic elements in several of her fictions. Her last uh, Corbin Loosestrife series of novels begins as a history of, uh, begins with, with Vikings, uh, ends up in Russia, and, and gradually becomes full-fledged fantasy by the fourth volume. And partly the fact that her readership is heavily, heavily historical fiction readers, yeah. uh, that series didn't get very much attention in, in the fantasy world. Yeah, yeah. Um, had had I mean, to some extent, really. I mean, there, there there's a there's an element in which you can write historical fiction as though it were fantasy. Gene Wolfe certainly did this in the Soldier mm-hmm. of Sidon series. And I think one of the things that's happened to Cecilia is that um, she has a terrific reputation. She has an uh, uh, an admirable following. She published a short nonfiction piece on uh, on Kindle singles, which is one of the best-selling Kindle singles ever. I guess it's doing phenomenal for. Her. But in the science fiction and fantasy field, yeah, I think you're right. People think of uh, floating worlds. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Um, I'm going to spin back and just sort of say I'm still not – I'm not sure if we've necessarily responded to all of our commentaries, and I apologize if we haven't. And I'm mm. not sure if we've answered fully the question which um, Susan has raised. I mean, I, I think maybe we have a little bit. Uh, I mean, truthfully, when it comes down to her, you know, her sort of end point about – Men and women in the in the new wave, who won and why. Uh, I think that our previous discussion was unbalanced, and I think that we've perhaps had a chance to address that a little bit here. I don't know who won, frankly. I think well, probably, you know, I think I'll tell you who I thought won. We won because well, we, we got more of a yeah. broader range of voices to encounter, and you can always recount. I guess I, I guess my point uh, that I wanted to make about the, about about new waves, and I still think of it in the plural. Is that they? It's not a matter of a bunch of writers deciding to write a bunch of things at the same time. It's a matter of a bunch of editors deciding to ask writers to write those things or to well, invite true, them, true. permit them to write those things. Yeah. And the ironic thing about the new wave, whether or not the winning writers turned out to be male or female, is that at least um, two of the major editors who promoted. And when I was talking about Judy Merrill, I didn't even mention England Swings SF, the worst titled anthology <laughs> ever. Oh, but it was a good. That was the first time I read uh, the Heat Death of the Universe. Yeah. Uh, it, but it came out a year after uh, Dangerous Visions, so mm-hmm. it didn't. It, it was meant to introduce the new wave to the United States. In fact, what Merrill had done was introduce the new wave to the United States in her year's best anthologies for sure, five or six sure, years. Sure. I'll also say, I mean, Susan concluded her comments that. By saying, so in 1971, a major writer and anthologist says the best writers in SF today are the women. Full stop. In 2011, a major anthologist, I assume she means me, says something like, women are doing okay, and, and she makes an aside, uh, jump in and correct my memory of your words, Jonathan, the quotation isn't quite right, but I'm not re-listening to find the exact quote, nor am I. Discuss, please, at length and with specific examples, uh, she, you know, she says. Now, first of all, I'd suggest to you that Harlan, with all due, and res- due respect, because that's who she's referring to from his introduction, was perhaps being a bit evangelical in his statement. He was uh, identifying some of the great writers in the history of the field who were writing at that time and w- was also being promotional a little bit, stating to how he th- th- hoped the field would be. And I'd also say that, yeah. that it's my pattern of speech. When I say you're doing okay, I mean you're doing okay, uh, if that's exactly what I said. Do I think that the best writers in SF today are the women? No. I think... Some of the best writers in SF today are women, and some of the best writers in SF today are men. I think I could point to handfuls of women. I could point to handfuls of men. Uh, I tell, the, I actually think that women in science fiction and fantasy and horror are doing better today than they probably ever have before, uh, because there are more of them. We discuss them more. They're more part of the dialogue. I think that's true. Um, and I think that that's borne out by the nature of the discussions we've had here publicly over the last year and a bit, and what we've read over the last tw- you know, 20 years as the field you know, grows and evolves. Well, yeah, and I don't think that um, I don't think there's a competition going on at all. I think the, the writers I know write the best fiction they can, and sometimes the best fiction they can write uh, is, is is frankly directed toward their own audience. And I'm not going to try to mention any names here, but there's a sense that uh, oh, let me think. Let me think of an example of uh, 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 because the one person I met only a few years before she died was Andre Norton, who was one of my formative influences. And one of the interesting things 
that that you learn about women in science fiction. When you grow up as a kid and you're reading Andre Norton and you think it's Andre, you know, I you, you, there was nothing on those Ace paperbacks that said this person was born as Alice North. Yeah. Um, and and at some point you discover, okay, it's a woman, and uh, that's cool. But it, you, I'm, I'm going to read more of these novels anyway. Uh, yeah. But when but, but when she got uh, somebody was doing a paper on her at a convention I was at one time on on Andre Norton proto feminist and she took offense at that. She yeah. Said, no, I'm not. I am, and she wasn't saying she wasn't a feminist. She's saying I'm a science fiction writer. That's all I am. I write the best stories I can think of. Uh, and, and, and she writes a lot of stories with female protagonists because that's what she knows about. She's writing out of her own experience. She's writing um, sometimes boy protagonists because she thought that's what the market the, that's what the market would bear when she wrote yeah. Starman's Son. Um, so, so the the point is, every writer I know is writing the best fiction they know how to write. And uh, you're you're probably right if we try to define that according to which gender is the best group in science fiction. I I couldn't do that. I can't think of a better short story writer than Mary uh, uh, Rickert. Oh, Mary Rickert or Kelly Link. Well, uh, I, I guess what I'm saying, not that, trying to. I don't know that anybody is. Let's be fair. I don't know that anybody is. And we're sort of bouncing around another topic. But what I would say to you is that what all anybody's asking is that we recognize when people, we give everybody an equal opportunity to have their best work discussed and be part of the field, and that we recognize it when it exists. When the well, work I think exists. there's a and, you know, I think I think there is an historical point to be made. Yes. And it's an historical point that can be made not only among the obvious candidates of, of Ursula Le Guin and Joanna Russ, but among the less obvious candidates of Judith Merrill as a writer or Zena Henderson or Miriam Allen DeFord or Lee Brackett, that there was a way of reading science fiction, which a lot of us hadn't thought about. And by us, I mean the sort of collective fandom going back generations. Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt that the way people read science fiction has been changed three or four or five or six or seven times. Uh, by an influx of new writers. Uh, you mentioned the number of African-American or uh, Car Caribbean-American uh, or Caribbean writers uh, that are in the field. Yeah. Uh, that has changed the sensibility uh, of, of, of the field in the same way that you know, a few... Um, of the, I, I think the group that I, I'm, I'm wondering about is, yeah. uh, is Hispanic writers. or I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Juno Diaz when he wants to write this great... Dominican science fiction novel, which everybody really, really wants him to write, um, that sh that would change the way we read science fiction. That would change what we think of the possibilities of science fiction. I think Nnedi Okorafor is looking at things from an Afro African centric perspective, changes the way we yeah. read Alien Worlds. Yes. Um, one of the writers, another writer who I think has more or less uh, unfairly faded from you that I liked for a while is Ernest Hogan, who's one of our few yes. uh, Chicano science fiction writers. Yes. And High Aztec, actually, if you go back and look at that, uh, came out about the same time I think Snow Crash did, and covers some of the same territory. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was by 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 I don't know whether it it certainly was not an ambitious sure. large scale literary novel in the sense of Neil Stevenson. But I wonder if when that novel came out, the fact that it basically was centered. You know, in Mexico, with Mexican protagonists, may have done it some damage. I don't know. I'd like to think that would not happen today. Yeah. And if it wouldn't happen today, it's because of various writers and groups of writers who have changed our ability to read other, um, or well, to use an academic term, to read other inscriptions in the genre. <laughs> well, yes, no, no, I agree with that. I will tell you know, one of the most interesting thing, things as well that I came across in reading about reading up for this podcast you know, this morning, my, my extensive pod, you know, research of 30 or 40 minutes over breakfast. <laughs> Rob, Robert Latham, uh, uh, Rob Latham, who I think you would know, uh, wrote, wrote a piece uh, in the New York Review of Science, Science Fiction where he identified three trends that prevail immediately prior to the advent of a new genre movement. Right? One. A widespread sense of malaise among writers and fans owing to economic developments impacting on publication and dissemination of science fiction, combined with a dawning uh, sense of possibility linked to the arrival of new markets. Two, mm -hmm. the retirement or obvious decline in productivity of a number of major authors whose output has dominated the previous decade. And three, the inchoate but growing palpable influx of fresh thematic material, partly inhibited by prevailing orthodoxies and thus awaiting mobilizations by talent less beholden to SF traditions. Now, he says those um, tr conditions existed just prior to the you know, arrival of the new wave and cyberpunk. 
I'm going to put to you, and possibly for discussion on a later podcast, don't they exist now? That's a good question. Are we in a uh, pre-movement phase of the field? I suspect we are, and I wonder if one of the if one of the evidences of that is the extent to which we uh, are are looking back at movements and trying to identify mm. movements. I mean, I wonder if all this uh, uh, any anything punk. I mean, um, yeah, I, I saw actually it was Adrian who used the term circus punk because of all the sort of supernatural circus novels that seem to be coming out now. And before that, steampunk, and before that, cyberpunk. And all that is a sense... I mean, I think one of the things that happens when we start labeling the recent yeah. past is that there's an inchoate sense that something new needs to come or something new yep. is coming. And yes. maybe, maybe he's right. Um, and maybe we just don't have a label for it yet. Sure, I mean, yeah. Uh, I'd also say that you know, whenever one person uses the word inchoate, for some reason, other people want to. And, and maybe we should, by, oh, yeah. by the way, also, since these are movements, maybe we could rename the new wave Inner Space Punk. Um, well, that's, that's Ballard again, isn't it? <laughs> uh, we are getting towards the end of this podcast. Um, two other things, and then let's wind it all up. First of all, mm -hmm. this week was the week that the SF Gateway titles went live. And this yes. is where we were talking about, you know, when I was saying the novels of, um, oh, I'm going to get killed now because I forget her name. Uh, the female, oh. uh, new wave writer who said that she had four of her novels back in print. Josephine Saxton, yes. Josephine Saxton. Josephine Saxton's Saxton stuff has been put out as part of the SF Gateway going live. Not the mm -hmm. actual Gateway Gateway itself for some reason, but the titles. And yes, all around the world you can download Yellow Golan's editions again. If you know, Not necessarily all of them, because you know, if you're in Australia you can't have as many. Uh, and you have to pay 60% more than anybody else in the world. But other than that, you can get them. Mm-hmm. And so I would point that. The thing that had me briefly excited is I had thought the SF Encyclopedia was going live at the same time as the SF Gateway, but the Encyclopedia is not out yet. I think it's like imminent, so I'm excited about it's that. Out, but by the end of the year, I'm sure. It's going to make our podcast so much easier. We can cheat on all that knowledge. <laughs> and it absolutely will. Given that we are now, without, I believe, too much rambling, Gary, so hats off to us. Um... Oh, I think we rambled plenty. I don't think I don't think we need to apologize to anybody for not rambling incoherently. I would like to thank all of our commenters on the blog. All of them. They've all been intelligent, thoughtful. They've led directly into this podcast, and which I think has been a interesting. It's been a conversation I've enjoyed having and preparing for. And I hope that they and others will continue to actively be involved in our best of the year and other discussions. Because I think it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing when we get a little bit of a sense of community going about this. So, yeah, thank you very much, commenters and listeners. I, I agree. And, uh, and we are listening to you as much, if not more, than you're listening to us. Well, almost. Let's not get well, carried away. We're fairly interested. Okay. That, so, that sounded rhetorical, didn't it? I don't know about rhetorical, yeah. whatever that means anyway. All well, I, I mean, I pay, we pay attention to comments. A little bit. Yeah. You don't want to encourage them too much. <laughs> <laughs> on that note Mr. Wolf it's it's 20 days till I get on a plane and I've got to do the year's best I'm just freaking and, out and you've got to do the year's best and we've got to do a couple of more of these podcasts and um, yep uh, but at least we'll have some guests coming up in the future so that'll be we exciting. do we, well, I mean certainly for the three weeks when I'm traveling we have the three interviews lined up and we've got other ones to um to record while I'm, um, I'm on the road, and then we'll be able to put that all together, and hopefully everybody will enjoy it and find it interesting and worthwhile. But, but on so. that happy note, my good friend. We will talk again next week. We will indeed. Till the next one. Take good care. All right. You too. Bye. Bye.